0: We're continuing our series in Acts this morning. We're going to be camping out uh, in Acts chapter 9, looking at the conversion of Saul. So if you have a a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And I want to begin by reading uh, all, if not most, of the chapter this morning. So follow along, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't Is this, not isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And we will pause there for a moment. In the year 1984, ex-bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger decided he would grace the world in a film titled The Terminator. I'm sure many of you have seen it. Now, if, if you've seen this film, you'll know that The Terminator's sole mission was to come back from the future and eliminate Sarah Connor. That was his only uh, ambition, I must destroy Sarah Connor. And despite his best efforts throughout the course of the entire film, Sarah gets some help for, from, from some other people, and he's unable to do so, right? And then in 1991, Terminator 2 comes out, a film called Judgment Day, and um, you know, Sarah Connor's had it pretty tough. She's had this you know, futuristic killing machine come after her. She finds herself in a mental institution because she's trying to tell people that this is happening. They lock her up, they think she's crazy. And this Terminator comes into the mental institution, tracks her down into a hallway. She's lying helpless on the floor and she's thinking, this is it. He's he's finally caught up with me, I'm gone. And then you hear him lean over and say, come with me if you want to live. (laughs) And you, you can see this look in her eyes as if to say sorry, (laughs) you've been hunting me down for how long, you've changed the trajectory of my entire life, I've ended up in this mental institution because of you, and now you're saying, come with me if you want to live? I mean, that's a pretty radical conversion, she doesn't really know what to do with it, right? And in like manner, I'm sure there's plenty other Hollywood films we could probably cite uh, with similar examples, you know, we've got Very memorable conversion stories. Uh, My favorite would be Last Samurai. If anyone's seen that with Tom Cruise? Um, You've got Gru from Despicable Me. Uh, He suddenly has a change of character. You've got Diego, the saber-toothed tiger from the movie Ice Age. And then, of course, you've got Darth Vader, who decides to do his converting at the last minute. But all that to say, we do love a good conversion story, don't we? These are stories that we all greatly treasure. But what no Hollywood story can ever reproduce is the radical and revolutionary and even scandalous story that we find here in Acts chapter 9. This is actually one of the most outrageous stories in human history. It is the story of how one of the church's greatest enemies became the church's greatest asset, asset and companion. This is a crazy story. In fact, I would even say it is so fundamental to to Christian uh, history and the foundation of our faith that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the number one historical fact that we need to safeguard and defend and prove, the conversion of Saul would be a very close second. This is a very important conversion story for our faith. And Luke, the, the author of Acts, he knows this. He's actually put it into his account on three different occasions. The first one is here in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to see it again uh, in kind of like an autobiographical form in Acts chapter 22, and then again in Acts 26. So Luke's making a point here, saying you need to know about the conversion of Saul. In fact, there's actually a really famous uh, liturgical prayer book in the Anglican Church known as the Book of Common Prayer. And it says, we must have this wonderful conversion in our remembrance. And as we unpack this story today, you're going to see why that is the case. Why we must keep this story in our remembrance often. Okay. So how does Luke begin this account, you know, one of three that he gives us? He showcases once more the recalcitrant, raging, and just hostile disposition that... Saul has towards the church. It says there in those first verses, it's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, now what does is, what is Luke get in that when he says that still breathing threats and murder? Well, it's not necessarily to say that he directly murdered Christians, but we know that he would have, at the very least, instigated their floggings. So... Jesus was flogged prior to his crucifixion and he was flogged with what's known as a Roman flagellum. That would rip you to shreds. That would rip guy to pieces. But in the synagogues, the, Jew, the Jews administered their own floggings. It wasn't with the Roman flagellum, but it was with like a much lighter, thinner whip. And it's quite likely that Saul himself was administering these whips onto the Christians, persecuting them. And then when the time came after flogging them, he would uh, cast his vote so that these Christians would then go on to be executed. So he's breathing threats and murder. And you have to ask the question, what's fueling this man's hostility? Like, What what brings a man to behave like this? What's, What's raging inside of him to behave that way? Well, you've got to see that Saul is a Pharisee, and he is a very zealous defender of Judaism. Okay? So in the mind of any Pharisee who is incredibly well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures, um, the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified uh, on a Roman cross, that was irrefutable evidence that this is a man cursed of God. And, and the reason a Pharisee would think that way is that they would cite Deuteronomy 21, and they would say this, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree like crucifixion his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God so you can see Saul he's outraged because all of oh, a large number of his fellow Jews his kinsmen, are bowing the knee to a man that he considers cursed of God that, like, this is the utmost kind of blasphemy and he is raging against them. Uh, As one theologian uh, put it, he said that Saul's outrage was at the blasphemous Christology of a crucified pretender. That's what he thinks of Jesus. He is a crucified pretender and he is upset that all of these fellow Jews are suddenly bowing the knee to him. In fact, the portrayal of his outrage is actually so descriptive here. Uh, When it says that he's still breathing uh, threats and murder, we're actually supposed to think of like a ferocious beast, right? Think bull, okay? You know know how you see them getting ready to charge and they start snorting? (laughs) They've seen red. He is breathing threats and murder. You're supposed to see Saul here as something like a raging bull beast figure. This isn't normal behavior. And he's so fervent in his defense of Judaism. He's ready to go through the flock of God like a lion to a bunch of sheep. So this is Saul. And you might remember a few weeks ago uh, when I shared, Saul had been um, persecuting the church in Jerusalem and it caused them to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. And as it turns out, some of the, the scattering that must have taken place, although it's not directly said, some Christians must have ended up in Damascus as well. So he, he hears about this. He's like, not only have they, they fled to Judea and Samaria, they're even in Damascus, outside the borders of Israel. And he says to himself, well, I'm going to go after the fugitives. So he approaches the high priest and says, look, I would like letters of extradition. That's effectively what he's going on here. Can you write letters to effectively give me permission to go and get those Christians and bring them back here so I can beat them up some more? I've got more Christians to kill. This man is raging here. Now, to what degree that the high priest would have had jurisdiction, it's a little bit debated. He would have no doubt had influence. At the end of the day, he's the high priest, a lot of work around the temple, but this is outside the borders of Israel. So it's not like he could have you know, told the synagogues in Damascus, I say jump, you say how high. It wasn't quite like that. Saul was going to have to do a little bit of persuasive work, uh, as it were. So here he is, letters in hand, And he's venturing off to Damascus as a raging, hostile, ferocious, bull-slash-beast character. Not a pretty picture, is it? And then what happens next? It said, Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, there's two key things I need you to see in the way Jesus addresses Saul here. Number one, who does Jesus say Saul is persecuting? Does he say, Hey, um, hey Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Does he say that? No, he says, Why are you persecuting me? You see Christ is actually so bound up with the affairs of his people that to persecute his people is to persecute him. He is so bound up with us. Isn't that incredible? That 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 should encourage us today. You see I I don't know what degree of persecution or suffering you may have experienced or are currently experiencing. But there's a there's a little tone of encouragement in this text for us today because Jesus identifies with you in your suffering. When you're persecuted, when you suffer, there's a sense in which he feels it as much as you do. He, he's not standoffish and apathetic and indifferent. No, he's very present, he's imminent, and he's fatherly, and he identifies with you in your pain. We, we see that. Jesus said it himself in uh, Luke chapter 10. He said, The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So Jesus says he identifies with us in our persecution. And then we see it in a more positive light in Matthew 25. (coughs) You might remember this one. He says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And then he continues this list of charitable deeds. And then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So Project Church, let's be of good cheer. If we are currently being persecuted, or should we face it in the future, Jesus identifies with you in your pain. So be encouraged by that today. As um, one person put it, David Peterson, he says, um, those who are united to Christ by faith suffer as he did, and he identifies with them in their struggle. So that's the first thing we see in this address that's a little odd, but I would say this next thing is even more curious. Um, how does Jesus address Saul? How does, how, does, how does Jesus address this raging bull? I mean, he has got the right to just smite him on the spot. This guy is persecuting his people. He could just be thinking, you know what, let's just reenact Acts chapter 5. Let's just do the Ananias and Sapphira thing all over again. Oh, you want to come against me? Bang. Good night. See ya. Done. Is that how Jesus responds to this raging bull? <laughs> no, he says, Saul, Saul. The late uh, R.C. Sproul. If you haven't heard R.C. Sproul before, you need some R.C. Sproul in your life. Incredible Bible teacher. He highlights that when a name is repeated in the Bible, it is always using really intimate and personal language. So when you see repetition like this, you know, Jesus isn't being harsh towards him at all. He's actually being incredibly tender. Um, we, we see this, for example, in uh, Matthew 23. Can you remember when Jesus was? mourning over the city of Jerusalem and all the sin and corruption that was going on there. How does he address this holy city? He says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Repetition. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. So this is language of affection that we see here. Isn't that just a bit odd? (laughs) This raging bull is getting affection from Jesus. He's not saying, Oi, Saul, cut it out. You're killing me here. (laughs) He's basically saying, son, what are you doing? He graciously saves Saul. You see, the truth is, although Saul wasn't seeking after Jesus, Jesus was seeking after Saul. You see, we we can make a really big mistake when we read Acts chapter 9. We can look at this radical conversion story and go, wow, you know, Saul's a particularly messed up dude, you know, he's kind of like an extreme case study, you know, let's put him off in the X-Files. This is how the occasional Christian gets saved. But the truth is, if you're in Christ today, this is you. This is me. This is exactly how we all come to faith, raging and in hostility towards God. Now, we may not be holding the whip, but in one way or another, our disposition towards God is not a good one. See, it's incredible when Jesus saves someone. It's it's kind of a shocking transition that's almost hard to explain. Jesus said that in John 3.8. He says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's a, this is the scandalous nature of God's grace. It's just one day we wake up and go, I I I don't know. I once was blind and now I see. <laughs> and this is what we see here. You, you see, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that our conversion kind of consists in us, you know, we'll, we'll clean up our act a little bit first and then one day, you know, somewhat devoutly we say, righto, Lord, um, I now welcome you in. Um, nothing particularly radical required here. In fact, I've done most of the cleaning up for you. Um, yeah, nothing radical required. I've never really been opposed to you, in fact. Um, we're just subtly out of alignment. Let's just get on board together. <laughs> Is that the, is that the picture of anyone's conversion? Not at all. <laughs> you know, we can. Um, it's true. There's a sense in which we invite Jesus into our life, but you have to realize that before Jesus, you didn't have life. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. He had to come and resurrect you, as we said in our song today. Jesus Christ is resurrecting me. He had to make you alive. <laughs> You weren't chasing Jesus, he chased you down. <laughs> this is what Jesus does. He's, I like to say Jesus is a menace <laughs> when it comes to hunting down the hearts of his children. This is what he does. This is his specialty. Is it, is it any wonder that Luke wants to recall this three times in the book of Acts? Is it any wonder that the book of common prayer says, keep this one in your remembrance? And the reason is, is because it should remind you of yourself should remind you of that incredible redemptive grace that Jesus lavished upon you undeservingly. That's what this conversion should remind you against. And what's cool about this is that because we have the three different accounts in Acts, we can kind of put them together to see all the different things that Jesus said to Saul. In the account in Acts 26, it says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? But <laughs> what's a goad, right? Um, you see, when farmers back in the first century Palestinian region, when they used to cart their produce along, they would use oxen to you know, big, strong creatures to pull along the produce, right? And obviously, for an ox to be able to do that, you'd have to break them in, like you do with many animals, and that would require, you know, light whipping at times. But what would happen is these raging bulls would be carting along, and they're getting a bit sick of the whip. So what do they do? Kick back and they can knock a whole cart over and there goes your produce. So you don't want to upset the ox or upset the bull. So what farmers would do, which was quite incredible, incredible, they'd put spikes or goads, right, sharp prodding type objects, on the front of the cart. So if the bull's getting a bit sick of the whip, he goes to kick. Ow, I've hurt myself again and he moves a bit quicker. And so what Jesus is in effect saying here to Saul, why do you keep kicking against me? I'm... I'm prodding you. I'm, I would even say, wooing you to myself. I'm, I've been drawing you. Stop, son. Stop kicking against me. <laughs> this is beautiful. Um, but then it asks the question, okay, well, if Saul's raging and he's on the road to Damascus, what form did these goads take? Did he, was he just getting a quick goad you know, on the road to Damascus on one particular day? Now, this would have actually been happening in his heart for a period of time. Now, the Bible doesn't say exactly what these goads were, but we could probably have a well-informed guess. And here's what I'd suggest to you. Paul, I'm sorry, Saul, would have spent a lot of time at the temple, would have hung out in Jerusalem a fair bit. Who else used to hang out there? Hmm, a man named Jesus. (laughs) It's possible that Saul, at some point, heard Jesus teach. It's possible that he saw the greatest Bible teacher in the history of the planet teach and it might have stirred him up a little bit. What if at some point in his young life or even adult life, he looked Jesus straight in the eye? (laughs) We don't know that, but geographically it's possible. So that's one thing that might have been a a prod, a wooing, a summoning unto himself. But what, what else? Well, this is a guy persecuting Christians. Think about all the times he would have interrogated Christians and the amount of times they were just willing, willingly, non-vindictively allowing themselves to be executed. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Forgive them. They know not what they do. In like manner of their Lord. Do you reckon that might have stirred him up a little bit? <laughs> this devout man just watching people go to the death so willingly? If you don't believe me, I mean, read the account in... Um, Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. Saul was the one who approved of his execution and he would have seen a few of those. I would argue that these things are prodding Saul. (laughs) And so Jesus says to him, Son, why are you kicking against the goads? I'm drawing you to myself. Stop resisting. This is what theologians call the effectual call of God. That's the picture of our salvation. We don't go hunting down Jesus. He hunts you down. Some have called him the hound of heaven. (laughs) He'll get you. (laughs) If you're his child, he'll get you. Guaranteed. Locked in. All bets are off. Jesus is a menace at hunting down his children. He says it in uh, John 6, 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, long before you and I ever bowed the knee, yes, we did respond in faith. I'm not denying free will or anything like that. We did respond in faith. But long before any of that, Jesus had a goad in your back. (laughs) He was prodding you. And that's mercy and that is grace. This is why we can say salvation is ultimately a work of God. Okay? Jesus came and got me. He drew you to himself. He made you alive. And then you responded in faith. This is the relentless, redemptive pursuit of God. In fact, um, 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, who they've called the Prince of Preachers, this is what he said of his own conversion. He said, I took no torch with which to light the sun, but the sun enlightened me. I did not commence my spiritual life, no. I rather kicked and struggled against the things of the spirit. When he drew me for a time, I did not run after him. There was a natural hatred in my soul of everything holy and good. Wooings were lost upon me. Warnings were cast to the wind. Thunders were despised and as for the whispers of his love, they were rejected as being less than nothing and vanity. But sure I am and can say now, speaking on behalf of myself, he only is my salvation. It was he who turned my heart and brought me down on my knees before him. (laughs) So instead of marching into Damascus as a raging bull. he's blindly held by his companion's hands. Jesus had hunted him down while he was hunting Christians. As John Stunt put it, the stiff neck of the self-righteous Pharisee bowed. The ox had been broken in. This is one to keep in our remembrance because it reminds us of ourselves. And the other thing it does, it reminds us of those who are dear to us who may not yet know the Lord. You know, Ananias voices a hesitation here that we so often voice. Look, you, you can't send me to Saul, like I'll be a sitting duck. Like this is the guy who's got the letters, you know, and then he's gonna bring me back bound to Jerusalem. I, I can't go see that guy. You see, Ananias doubts the saving power of God. <laughs> God saying, Do you know who you're dealing with? <laughs> I'll save anyone I want at any time, anywhere. And we do the same thing. Oh, <laughs> that guy at work? Too far gone. D- Jesus can't get him. The heart's just a bit too hard there. There's no point evangelizing to him. Too far gone. Maybe even um, maybe even some parents in the room. Oh, you know, God could save my second child. They're a sweet little dear. But my third, my goodness. Like, no chance. I mean, that's... <laughs> we talk like this, don't we? I'm Not, not as a parent, but I've... I've heard parents speak in that way. Let me remind you, when you're praying to Jesus that they might come to the Lord, you're praying to the hound of heaven. Let that be in your prayers this week. Hound of heaven, get him. That's often on my prayer. Get him, Lord. Get him. I've got one friend and um, I've been sharing the gospel with him for a while now and you can see the goading, you can see it. I just want to say, stop kicking against the goats. <laughs> I can see it. He's got a target on his back. The hand of heaven's going to get him, and I can't wait. So pray for those of, who are dear to you, who don't know Jesus, because Jesus is mighty to save. Paul even looks back on this in 1 Timothy 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If you're losing hope, look at Saul. It is an example of God's perfect patience. And be encouraged by that this week. So do you remember your salvation? Are you caught up in just the most incredible thanksgiving that God came and got you? That's one to keep in remembrance this week. And let's pray to that hound of heaven this week. So Jesus has tamed the beast, okay? Saul has been called, he's been converted, and now he's here praying and he's waiting to be commissioned, okay? So we've got a tamed beast, and now Jesus is saying, time to unleash the beast, all right? Saul is a bit of a beast when it comes to theology. You see, this man Saul, is a, he's a Pharisee. Jesus had been grooming for his mission uh, since he was a boy. He has spent his life studying the Torah. He'd specifically moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem to teach the people of that city, the Old Testament. He would have memorized parts of the Bible. So I mean, in AFL terms, we'd say this is a strong draft. Okay, so we've, we've just got some serious firepower uh, in the synagogues. They've just recruited the number one pick. He knows the Bible better than anyone. And Jesus is about to unleash this beast. But before any of that, we see Saul praying and fasting in the house of Judas. And I wonder, what was he praying at that point? I reckon if, um, I reckon if you and I were a fly on the wall in that moment, probably would have uh, brought some tears on. Like th- this is a man who has come to the end of himself. <laughs> I mean, when you, when you think about everything he'd ever <laughs> believed, everything he'd ever worked towards, all the self-righteousness he had supposed he had accumulated, it makes you think about some of the things he, he wrote later in Philippians, like, I counted all as a loss. <laughs> Anything I thought I had gained from that lifestyle, I counted as a loss. I wonder if, he's, as he's praying here, he's uttering similar words. And he's waiting here with this posture, asking God, what should I do next? And then Ananias arrives and he's handed this assignment. And it's an assignment that would change the course of his life forever. He specifically has a mission from God to go and preach to the Gentiles. No doubt, he's got some ministry to do uh, with the people of Israel, with the Jews. He's going to spend a lot of time in synagogues. But specifically, his unique mandate is to the Gentiles. And so there's something actually for us to grasp here in Saul's posture can you see how quickly he moves from conversion to commissioning he sees that as one redemptive work he doesn't sit back and go i'm just going to be the saved christian and not the sent christian you see the the moment he's converted he's asking lord what do you want me to do and there's something that we need to grab there you see our conversion is never a silent phenomenon Saul is coming to the realization that not only is he a child of God, but God declares him here to be an instrument of God. Are you reminded of that this morning? We are saved to be sent, called, converted, and then commissioned. So he's baptized, his side is restored, and then Ananias gives him his marching orders, and the, the marching orders are really interesting. They not only give him his target audience, the Gentiles, but then he also says you're going to be targeted by the audience. He says, Show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so he does it. He embraces his marching orders, and immediately, like straight away, no, no Bible college, just straight in, he's preaching in the synagogues, and people are confounded and amazed. They're shocked at both the message he's preaching and the fact that it's him who's preaching it. Okay, the message and the messenger are just a little bit weird here in Damascus. Okay? So firstly, you've got a Pharisee saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Think about that. Like, this is a man that he'd formerly considered cursed of God. Now he's saying he is God. What kind of overnight Bible-bender did he go on in Damascus? Like, this is intense change. Like, he's dropping some serious gospel bombs here in Damascus, right? Um, and it's saying, not only was he saying that Jesus was the Son of God, the word that's used there in Acts 9 is that he was proving that Jesus was the Son of God. He, he's producing an argument from all that Old Testament preparation, everything he'd read since he was a boy, everything he's memorized, he is proving from the Old Testament Jesus is the Messiah. And they're going, well, it's Saul. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. I can't, I can't argue back. He. He's nailing this. I don't know what scripture he turned to. If I were to guess, Isaiah 53, maybe others, but he's nailing it. And they're gobsmacked. We don't have a rebuttal. Case closed. Jesus is the Messiah. So the message is odd. But then at the same time, they're scratching their head at the messenger, <laughs> going, uh, Saul, we know you. <laughs> um, what are you playing at? Like, what happened? Weren't you like, you know, you're carrying the whip and you've gone from that to carrying the Bible. Like, what's going on there, mate? Um, have you ever experienced that? Where maybe you've come to Christ and then people notice that you're just a little bit different and it just gets a bit awkward and a little bit weird. <laughs> you've been there? Um, the previous job I was at, I was at for, there for five and a half years. And um, in the earliest of those years there, I was not a happy dude. Me and Jesus uh, weren't doing too well. And um, let me tell you some of the nicknames that I accumulated in the first two to three years that I worked in my previous job, okay? The Unevolved Man, that was one of my names, right? Just a lot of grunting and carrying on. Grumpy Pants, I was frequently called Grumpy Pants. The Vanilla Gorilla was another one that uh, emerged onto the scene. I copped all sorts of things and it reflected my behavior. Things weren't going too well, right? And then, um, that was another nickname, the T-1000. <laughs> uh, but then the good shepherd chased me down. And despite me kicking against the goads, he kept coming. And then eventually, instead of being grumpy pants, the unevolved man, um, I'm the guy at work evangelizing, saying how good church was on Sunday, um, suddenly at Bible college, um, Oh, I preached at church on Sunday. People are going, aren't you the guy who caused havoc in Jerusalem? Like the, the same response that is given here of Saul, I've been there. It's a little weird. And we need to know that that's okay. It is okay for people to be a little bit shocked when you come to Christ and start professing your faith. It's going to get weird. Embrace it. <laughs> it's going to get a little bit awkward. I remember telling... Um, one of my closest mates who I'd worked with, we got to know each other pretty well, especially in those early years. And I was telling him some of the stuff that was happening in my life, and he just kind of went, uh, I'm shocked. I'll never forget. He, he, he couldn't categorise that somehow Grumpy Pants is now doing these things. What are you playing at, mate? I, I know you. <laughs> and this is normal. In, in fact... Saul gets uh, confusion from both sides. He gets it from the Jews going, aren't you the guy who caused havoc? And then he rocks up to the church in Jerusalem three years later. And what does it say? And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. for they did not believe that he was a disciple. <laughs> so people in the church might think it's a bit weird. Be <laughs> like, oh, God saved you? <laughs> we do. We, we forget the saving power of Almighty God. And when we see incredible transformation, we almost don't know what to do with it. This is normal. So be encouraged this week. You know, maybe, um, maybe you've even been in your workplace or your school for five to ten years, even as a Christian. And maybe, um, maybe there hasn't been much commission work. Maybe you haven't shared your faith. Maybe you haven't proclaimed the gospel in your workplace. Um, Go and amaze some people this week. Pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Pray for boldness. And maybe someone will say of you this week, Aren't you the guy who caused havoc? <laughs> that should be a normal response for us as we share the gospel. So let that be a challenge this week. And so the next thing that we see then is not only does the persecutor become the preacher, the persecutor becomes the persecuted. So he's in Damascus and there's a plot against his life, so he escapes by means of a basket. Yeah, and then when he comes to Jerusalem, the same thing happens. He's debating with the Hellenists, dropping some more gospel bombs. And then he says it has, he has to escape to his hometown of Damascus. So Paul, sorry, Saul has gone from a life of elite Pharisee living to a life of, a life of suffering. And what I want to highlight there is what we spoke about earlier. Can you see how this just confirms the historical reliability of what's going on here? Like, what did Saul have to gain by becoming a Christian? What was his motive? Like, he's gone from the best life possible. Everything was, like, the world was his oyster. He had it all going for him. He had the perfect Pharisee career all lined up. And he says, I'll take the life of suffering. Why? Why? Well, I think seeing the resurrected Christ would probably do it. (laughs) This is an incredible thing to hold on to. In fact, he he even testifies to it in Galatians 1. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. And here he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Advancing in Judaism doesn't want it anymore. Counts it as loss. So this is a reliable account. In fact, in the 18th century, there were two lawyers, uh, one by the man of Lord Littleton and then another one by the name of Gilbert West. And they basically conspired together and said, you know what? Christians keep saying that because of the historical proof of the resurrection of Jesus and the historical proof of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, um, these are the two things that they build their faith upon, right? So you know what? You take that assignment. I'll take that assignment. Let's write a book and pull apart the arguments for both and we'll disprove Christianity together. This is what two lawyers decided to do in the 18th century. And so anyway, they're going away, doing their work, and they reconvene and they go... Um, uh, I don't know about you, but um, I'm finding some curious facts uh, about this story. Um, all right, let's just go away and keep reading. And anyway, they both ended up writing a book saying the exact opposite. One wrote a book proving the resurrection of Jesus. The other one wrote a book proving the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And the one who proved that was actually a man named Lord Littleton. I read it in um, a commentary with this week. Fascinating story. And this is how he concludes. Now it's older English, so older English, so bear with me. He says, I shall then take it for granted that he was not deceived by the fraud of others, and that what he said of himself cannot be imputed to the power of that deceit, nor more than to the for imposture or to enthusiasm. It follows that what he related to have been the cause of his conversion and to have happened in consequence of it did all really happen. And therefore, the Christian religion is a divine revelation. It must be, accounted for by the power of God. That God should work miracles for the establishment of a most holy religion, which, from the insuperable difficulties that stood in the way of it, could not have established itself without such assistance, is no way repugnant to human reason, but that without any miracle such things should have happened, as no adequate natural causes can be assigned for, is what human reason cannot believe. What's he saying? He's saying Saul was not deceived. He's saying Saul was not an imposter. This actually happened. The proof in the pudding is that he had nothing to gain. This actually happened. And then you might ask, okay, well, what what happens next? Well, what happens is, is that he flees to his hometown of Tarsus, and it says that the church in Jerusalem is being built up. People were growing and they're walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the church in Jerusalem is actually getting a little bit of breathing room. All of a sudden, they're not getting the persecution uh, from Saul anymore. So basically, things are freeing up. And then Saul just kind of disappears off the map. You, don't, you actually don't really see him truly emerge back onto the scene until about Acts chapter 13. And we go, oh, okay, well, there's a gap between Acts 9 and Acts 13 you know, four chapters, it couldn't have been that long. But actually, over that period of time, there is a 14-year gap that people often refer to as the unknown years of Saul. And the truth is, although it's not recorded in the book of Acts, this is actually one of the most crucial parts in all of his ministry. He was ministering to all sorts of places. He was ministering in Arabia, in Syria, Cilicia, Syrian Antioch. So he's doing all sorts of incredible gospel work, Uh, in these unknown 14 years. And most of it is actually not to the Gentiles just yet. Most of what he's doing is going to other synagogues. In fact, when he recalls in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, when he's talking about all the things he had suffered, the shipwrecks and all that kind of thing, and how he says five times at the hands of the Jews, I received the 40 lashes minus one, it's being well argued that that probably happened in the unknown years of Saul. We don't know the exact stories, but he was sort of off as something of a rogue preaching the gospel, doing it through all sorts of synagogues in the background and being persecuted for it. You see, in Jewish synagogues, if you were uh, saying something that they disagreed with um, and it was pretty heavy, they um, gave you one of two options. Number one, we're going to kick you out. Or if you let us whip you 39 times, you're allowed to stay in. And on five occasions he faithfully said, I'll take the whip because I've got a gospel to preach. (laughs) This Pharisee is not only the preacher, he's now the persecuted and he's totally okay with it. (laughs) It's incredible, isn't it? And so the encouragement for us is that maybe Jesus has given you, maybe the Holy Spirit has pulled on the heartstrings of your heart and maybe he's given you a, a personal mandate uh, something with a great commission has become a personal assignment for you maybe there's a a foreign mission in a, another nation uh, maybe there's something locally here in Highfields and in toowoomba maybe um, there's a church plant something that the lord's tugging on your heart at but for saul he didn't realize his mission to the gentiles for another 14 years <laughs> so be encouraged this morning if jesus is tugging at your heart to do something in the future you can get started now. <laughs> there is gospel work to be done. And that is all part of the necessary preparation for any specific assignment Jesus may have given you. Now, what I'm not saying is that, you know, go and be faithful in the background and then one day Jesus will put you in the foreground, some weird egotistic spotlight thing. We're not, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about being faithful in the normal, everyday background noise faithfulness that Jesus called us to. And this is what Saul did for fourteen years, and this encourages me. And it should encourage us. So as we reflect on this incredible story of conversion, the band can come and join me. I want to remind you today, how often do you think of your own conversion? Do you remember that Jesus, the hound of heaven, came and got you? Does that does that bring you to a state of just awe and thanksgiving? We go, Lord, thank you. (laughs) And does that same thanksgiving, that same stirring, that same conversion drive you into mission to want to share the gospel with other people? Knowing that, it's Jesus, the hound of heaven, that's running ahead of you, getting ready to soften their hearts for when you rock up anyway. Is there anyone you've lost hope for? Maybe even someone in your own family. Pray to the hound of heaven. (laughs) He is a menace at getting his own children. (laughs) And when you watch him do it, man, it'll wreck you. And let's be faithful. Let's be faithful in the background. Who knows what Jesus will do here at the Project Church? But let's get to work right now. Let's pray. Father God, we're reminded of that continuous biblical theme this morning. Salvation is of the Lord. Lord, we are not people who devoutly sought you out. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and you made us alive. You had every right, Lord, to pour your wrath upon us, but you come to us and say, son, what are you doing? Daughter, what are you doing? I'm drawing you under myself father may we be ever reminded of this story and may it just be a drum that beats all the days of our lives and may we be reminded of it as we consider those close to us who do not yet know you may we be encouraged that you are goading people right now you are wooing them unto yourself you are prodding them in the most gentle fatherly way you are wooing people father And Father, being encouraged by that truth, may we go and boldly proclaim the gospel, knowing that it's really you doing the work. We thank you, Lord, of your incredible mercy. Father, like Saul, would you ready us to immediately preach the gospel and be okay when it's a bit weird, when it's a bit awkward and people go, this is out of character for you. I pray we embrace the weird this week, Lord. And Lord Jesus, um, may we be faithful with the work you've put in front of us. May we be faithful in what may even seem like unknown years to us where we're just laboring at the everyday, being faithful in the little, and we, we get discouraged. But Father, we thank you that this is all the necessary part of your incredible redemptive work. It works in us and through us in times like that. I'm reminded that Jesus himself was a carpenter for 30 years before he began his ministry. And that was just as important. That was part of his active obedience following